0: Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our conversations with stakeholders, experts, and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and better practices. I'm your host, Patrick Robinson, and I'm proud to contribute to the Safety with Purpose podcast network hosted by Safeopedia, where our mission is to lead, educate, and inspire. I'm chatting today with Andrew McNeil regarding workplaces in transition, the impact of noise-related legislation, and the outcomes of recent court cases that are game-changers in terms of managing noise at source. Andrew is managing director of McNeil Collective, a new breed of health and safety consultancy he was previously a lead consultant for a well-respected national employment law and health and safety consultancy firm drawing on his global risk management background andrew advises major corporate clients such as a multi-billion pound real estate investment trust a global airline corporate retail operations multi-academy trusts aerospace manufacturers construction companies, and many more. Originally an environmental health officer specializing in health and safety, his interest in the law drew him into leading a string of successful prosecutions against major companies, highlighting their need to improve safety policy, implementation, and risk management. He then went into global corporate risk management, with interests as diverse as construction, agriculture, road haulage, and printing. For nearly three decades, Andrew has been a presenter of the EBIS Health and Safety Law Program to a wide range of blue chip and major organizations. You'll find more information at mcneilcollective.com, and Andrew's LinkedIn profile is posted to the show notes of this episode. So, I bring you Andrew McNeil. Andrew, welcome to Safety Talks. Thank you, Pat. Let's talk about the ear and the function of listening. The
1: ear is an amazing instrument. Its sensitivity is really utterly amazing. Now, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever been in an um, anechoic chamber. This is like a, a really padded room that makes absolutely no noise and cuts all the noise out. But when you do, it makes a lifetime impression on you because... You can actually hear, not from the arteries in your ears, you can actually hear from your chest, your heart uh, moving. Uh, You can hear yourself breathing, it almost becomes deafening as your ear gets used to it. Because the sensitivity of the ear is immense. Um, It can actually be sensitive to pressure variations of a billionth of an atmosphere and uh, vibrations in the order of a tenth of an atomic diameter. So it's an incredibly sensitive instrument. But at the other end of the scale, and that's a kind of a, a 0, 1 decibels. We very rarely hear anything that quiet because life is much more noisy. Uh, but at the other end of the scale, at 130 decibels, the kind of threshold of pain, you're looking at something 10 million, million times louder. <laughs> so the the ear is an extraordinary instrument that has to be appreciated. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, uh, the decibel scale is, is exponential, yes? Yes,
1: yeah. yeah, exactly right.
0: It's interesting, you know, I think I had read something about the, uh, the chamber, I, I won't try to pronounce the, the chamber that you just mentioned, but um, my understanding of uh, that experience is that Uh, Many, many people just cannot remain within the chamber for very long because the the sensation and the the degree of isolation and various other uh, factors, it's input that uh, humans just really aren't. Uh, very accustomed to dealing with is a really unique situation, and you're absolutely right. It
1: it almost becomes scary and deafening just just your breathing. <laughs> it freaks you out.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of the regulatory framework and and OSHA specifically around um, noise exposure and some of those items. Okay, so um, regulatory framework um, for OSHA just.
1: I mean, it's not my area of expertise, because I, I, pra- I practice uh, health and safety um, in the UK, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, did just check it. And um, you're looking at, for most industries, uh, a decibel level of about 90 decibels as a eight-hour weighted average, uh, noise exposure as being the limit, and the law requires that you do not expose people above that, so you, you must put in control measures at or around that level. Um, In the UK, uh, that used to be the case, but a few years ago we came in line with the European Directive and that's 80 decibels is your action point. So anything over 80 decibels, you start looking at reducing the noise. But 85 uh, to 87 um, is the uh, upper limit, and you must reduce it below 85. And then there is the uh, kind of instantaneous level of exposure of 137, which is an A-weighted scale, for some sudden impact noise, which is an upper limit for that. And interestingly, Canada falls somewhere between the two. So um, you've got this 85 to 90 decibel limit um, for uh, for workers in, in Canada. At these levels, uh, kind of the 90 decibel level, you still will get noise-induced hearing loss over a career. And there are thousands of people in the UK and probably tens of thousands around the world who at these kind of levels are are actually uh, experiencing at the end of their career, um, a significant um, noise induced hearing loss.
0: I recall working with uh, a boiler maker. So this is a, a tradesman who spent a lot of time inside uh, pressure vessels, where of course you can appreciate there's lots of clanging and banging and of course back in his day there was no such thing as uh, PPE really um, earbuds or earmuffs that kind of thing let alone any sort of um, other controls that might be considered and um, you may recall this so this would be back sort of in the late 80s or early 90s and digital watches were coming out and they had um, an alarm on them and the pitch of that alarm he could not hear because really? over years of uh, exposure, that particular frequency had been burned out of his uh, his hearing system. So, mm-hmm. just, um, an example. You,
1: you raise a very good point there. What the practical implications are of excessive noise exposure over a working lifetime, uh, and that is that you know it, it cuts you off a bit from your family and from normal processes like hearing the alarm or being able to use the telephone effectively, um, and also if you get other problems like tinnitus or hyperacusis, this kind of hypersensitivity to certain frequencies or noises, then you, you can have your sleep disturbed and uh, it can lead to depression and, and anxiety, stress. So it's it's significant, the effect of noise is significant. Uh, just to digress perhaps a tiny bit, um, one of the cases that came up in the UK recently, Inglis, he was 39, he had a number of years as a Royal Marine trainer, um, in the uh, Army, and uh, he 's got a fifteen sixteen decibel noise loss in each year um, so that 's quite significant you know after a significant noise exposure you can you can have problems like this
0: It says something about um, the the changing nature of and, and I wanted to get into this because it was really interesting when we chatted prior to this uh, to this conversation that there are sources of noise exposure that um, Uh, just are are not the most apparent uh, if you're perhaps in the construction industry and you have um, impact tools for an example, um, those seem you know readily apparent in in most cases but um, you had brought to my attention a couple of areas that um, really were quite intriguing and and for me Mm. unexpected uh, where there's uh, significant exposure. Yes,
1: so for example um, those who've been in the army Um, The control measures over the years, the the Ministry of Defence is admitting were not adequate. They admit, uh, in many cases, um, a breach of a duty of care, and so there are many claims, and those claims can be significant. Um, But that's in the Army. You'd expect, if you have that job, then you're going to expect that kind of exposure. But it is recognised that more could have been done, and so there's a breach of a duty of care there. Um, is it worth talking about the Royal Opera House? Should I just bring that in? Sure, that's the Pat. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. Okay. That would be <laughs> so you've got a viola player. That's a quite a a quiet instrument, but uh, he plays in an orchestra. Um, and if any of your listeners are familiar with Wagner, uh, it's it's a noisy piece of music. It goes on for a long time. And so back in two thousand and twelve, um, a chap called Goldscheider was in the uh, in the orchestra playing the viola. And even on just one or two days of rehearsal, he was exposed to such a high level of noise with an 18-strong brass section of the orchestra, trombones and trumpets and so on, um, possibly peak sound levels of up to in excess of 130 decibels, the threshold of pain that he's exposed to, although he had PPE, um, that it resulted in hearing damage not just a, a noise-induced hearing loss, but a kind of acoustic shock syndrome of some kind that then meant that he it was uncomfortable for him to, to be in the orchestra anymore. It actually caused him pain, it was disorientating, it caused effects on his balance, um, and it caused hearing loss just from that incident. So um, he sued... The Royal Opera House, and that's one of the interesting cases that recently uh, we've been talking about in Ibis. The case went to appeal, and the appeal was decided in March uh, this year. And so uh, I've been talking about that in one of our health and safety conferences lately. And um, the the claim, according to the Guardian newspaper, um, for uh, loss of earnings alone is about three quarters of a million. Because he can't work in the orchestra anymore. He can't play the viola anymore.
0: Interesting on a couple of fronts. One is, obviously, this is acoustic music. It's not amplified music. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the number of instruments um, on the stage and in, in his uh, work environment, um, the the numbers in terms of decibels got really, really high. Um, you would expect this more from amplified music instead of acoustic, but there you, there you have it. The other thing mm-hmm. that... Um, was new to me is perhaps this is the, uh, the hearing loss or hearing exposure equivalent to contact dermatitis where um, you can be exposed to a particular agent with your skin for a period of time and then after um after uh, repeated exposures your skin um, has this uh, histamine reaction and eventually uh, basically rebels in, in the form of rashes and and other skin outbreaks and that basically forces you away from that agent or into other, other uh, control um, methods so that uh, you, you don't suffer um, that kind of exposure what you described struck me just as you're uh, saying that is uh, perhaps a, a similar thing where it seemed as he had had a significant career doing this kind of work, then at some point he had um, uh, an event, uh, at least from a physiological point of view, that sounds different than just um, long-term noise exposure. What you described sounded different than that.
1: Yeah, exactly, and this really is the first case of what you might call a kind of acoustic shock syndrome that we're aware of going through the courts, and, and it was, Significant, you know. C- can you actually? Can we? Can we measure this? It's not very easy to measure it. You have to take the person's word for it. But the effects are clear, and the doctors can see that it's dramatically affected his life. Uh, there is quite a lot of evidence in the core case of, of that happening. So basically, exposure at, at the kind of pain threshold on one occasion to somebody whose job is all about listening. Um, could change their career, can end their career. and it, it just really highlights the seriousness that employers now need to just think about how noisy things are, because maybe they really don't need to be that noisy. So, yeah, it, it's in orchestra, it's playing music. You expect it to be uh, noisy. That is their job to produce noise. But during the rehearsals, does it have to be that noisy? Can you make arrangements? In the court case, it was clear that if they had just rearranged the orchestra, They did later on Um, that reduces the exposure of people sitting there with um a trombone or a a trumpet blasting right into their ear so you just move people around you can you can halve the exposure of course we're talking about a listed building the royal opera house the orchestra pit is very small so there's a limited amount they can do but there still were things that could be done and they hadn't done them so there was a breach of a duty of care um,
0: and on appeal, yeah, that was held. So Gold Cheater gets his claim. Um, interesting. And, and really just on a, a human level, anyone who's uh, a musician, and uh, working professionally as a musician. This typically is um, a labor of love. It, it, I think it's probably unusual where you find somebody who say, hey, I'm just good at guitar, I'm gonna go be a professional guitarist. There's generally a uh, much heavier sort of uh, personal investment in, in this as a vocation, um, in the arts and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's not like say being, um, you know, uh, an auto body mechanic or something that, that, that may well be an art form in and of itself, having said that. Um, but it just strikes me that um, the loss here, not just like the, the hearing loss, and though he's been compensated, is that this is likely an area of uh, significant personal satisfaction for him. Uh, so um, that human element um, shouldn't be lost here uh, as well. That's right. Yeah, it's a life-changing injury, you could
1: describe it as, couldn't you? so it it raises the question we've we've discussed um mod we've discussed uh you know playing in an orchestra but working in a factory um working in oil and gas uh, manufacturing construction uh, should people just expect that they will leave their their job in the end with deafness with noise induced hearing loss well the answer really is no and um, and if employers are taking that view, then they are going to find that claims are coming in. Um, the game has changed. Claims are coming in for this kind of thing now, and they are significant. Um, so
0: can things be done? So let's talk about controls. Um, you had mentioned in this this particular uh, case study about um they had made some rearrangements to the to the workspace. In this case, the the layout and the design of um, where the musicians were on the uh, on the stage. Um, uh, some things regarding the uh, the pit. Um, but uh, talk about in, in general um, how employers um, ought to be thinking about um, workplace design and various other control me- mechanisms. Sure. So the, the
1: really big thing that happens in noise is if it's noisy people go straight to PPE um, and PPE can give if it's used in the ideal way a good PPE can give you a 20 or even nearly 30 decibel reduction in the noise exposure. The problem is that people take it out so that they can have a conversation or um, they forget to put it in or um, just the the environment is still is noisy before they put it in, you know, in the kind of the periphery of where they're working and so on. So it ends up not being effective. It ends up the case that still people who are provided with PPE, in fact um the musician was provided with PPE that provided him somewhere between nine or twenty odd decibels reduction. But it's just not practical always to use it all the time or to use it perfectly. And so even a short exposure to the noise can start to have an effect on people. So the, the main point is, um, the law usually requires that you do not go straight to PPE, that you actually look at reducing the noise at source. And People assume often that that can't be done, but actually it can. And uh, looking at both the OSHA website and the HSE website, um, there is a lot of information on this. So for example, if I can refer to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration website, there's a technical guide, a technical manual on noise, and it includes um, case studies, and also quite a few references at the end. And also, um, it refers people to the HSE uh, guide, which also has the same thing, lots of of case studies. In fact, the HSE guide, which is something I'm more familiar with, has uh, 60 case studies, of uh, things like um, woodworking machinery of compressed air reducing noise from extrusion line cut-off saws uh, reducing stone cutting noise rotary blowers press shops etc etc um, there is lots of evidence of how you can reduce the noise not just by putting it in an enclosure um, but by actually redesigning things or just making small modifications quite cheap modifications that can cut out the noise at source. Let's take one little example, Um, a power press. Rather than the power press impacting the workpiece in one go, kind of flat, if you add a slight chamfer to that, it will kind of cut into the workpiece almost silently, or at least with a lot less noise. If you've got compressed air, if you put a a noise-reducing hose on the end of the compressed air. It will reduce that. Let's take, for example, where often uh, motors are, are mounted. They may be mounted on the side panel of a machine, creating, in effect, a drum. As the motor whirs away, it, it vibrates on the panel of the machine, ab- dramatically amplifying the noise. Or you have hoppers with actuators at the bottom of them. If you isolate, mount the the actuator or the motor, um, Uh, Or if you use something like um, sound dead steel, which is laminated steel, which includes a sound deadening laminate. It cuts out the vibration, reduces the noise a lot, and suddenly you find without actually spending much, you have dramatically reduced your noise. So that really is the kind of big message uh, of probably this whole podcast from my perspective is don't go to PPE. PPE is only partially effective. Right. But there are actually cheap and effective ways of reducing noise. And you can even get noise experts on your side. So the Institute of Acoustics in the UK will happily um, analyze even a, a phone recording of the noise from your factory or from your process. Um, of course, they can also include the visual recording so they can see what it is that they're, they're looking at. And they will, for free, or at least very economically, tell you what kind of measures might be needed to cut out the noise by 10 decibels, 20 decibels at source, thus really reducing the exposure of your workers.
0: Whoa, that's great. So let me just see if I've got that, is that um, you can do a phone call with them and there's enough technology in the phone for them to be able to make an assessment in terms of noise in that workplace and make some recommendations based on that?
1: Yeah, so
0: um, so you can send an audio file
1: just recording from your phone. Of course, as I say, it would be good to to do an image file as well. Right. Um, yeah. But for example, if, if the noise is at 50 hertz, you know it's probably a motor. Um, if it's at um, at four times that, it's probably a fan in the motor. Yeah. Or you can tell compressed air. All of these things have a profile uh, and acoustic experts can listen to the noise, start to analyse it, work out what's causing your noise, and then say, "Well, look, if you if you address noise from this source in your factory or in your process, chances are you will reduce the noise emissions a lot." So, um, Sounded Steel also they send an audio file, and we'll give you an indication of the <laughs> of the measures that are likely to reduce the noise. So a lot of people who are working in this industry can just work off, at least initially, um, something like that. Another approach, perhaps a slightly more uh, uh, expensive diagnostic tool, is to have one of these motion amplification cameras. So uh, that would uh, account for certain types of noise, especially the kind of thing that I was talking about, where um, it's something like a coupling in a motor or a panel or a mounting that's the problem your motion camera will dramatically amplify any movement that it senses from just even pixels within the camera it dramatically amplifies it so you can basically see where the noise is being produced by your machine and if you want to kind of understand that cuz that's not I've not described it very well but if you can if you want to understand it if you go to youtube you can see the motion amplification cameras from rms limited um, and you'll see how this works how basically something that is invisible to the naked eye suddenly becomes visible by the motion amplification camera, helping you work out well what is it that 's causing the noise in this in this machine
0: that that 's tremendous so an adaptation of a, a similar technology that we might be familiar with is um, the the monitors that are used to to measure uh, temperature. So, you know, you you bought a new home or you're into a new apartment or a condominium or something and the inspector comes by and uh, that inspector will typically have a device that uh, can measure cold spots in your walls and air seepage around your windows. So, it's um, uh, showing you those heat signatures where what you're describing is you can actually see a visual depiction of the sound energy yes
1: especially if it's causing some vibration in in a panel or a machine or the mounting is moving wow. you know i mean also that has massive implications for your process reliability because if you're getting movement where you shouldn't it's going to affect the lifetime of your machine or your process um so there's another benefit to making sure you know to to having some kind of uh, analysis of what's going on technology is definitely there to try and do something about the actual sound levels. Uh, and again, just to emphasize that the OSHA website um, has a lot, the technical guide um, has a lot of information about how you can reduce noise at source without necessarily using acoustic enclosures, although it does also include those. And By the way, just talking about acoustic enclosures. Um, I I have no affiliation with any of these organizations. It's just coming across them um, at a recent Royal Society conference with the Institute of Acoustics and the Health and Safety Executive. Um, But Noise Trap Acoustic Panels, they um, have this amazing um, inner matrix which is comprised of uh, acoustic resonators which are designed to interact with the frequencies generated by process you're trying to deal with, such as, for example, low-frequency noise sources from a, a transformer hum, um, and that um, those resonators cause the n- noise um, waves to interact with each other and cancel each other out. So a relatively light and relatively cheap uh, metal panel will eliminate the noise or con- or confine the noise as effectively as a thick, um, concrete bunker
0: yeah yeah another another step forward with technology where you can mm. um, have a, a really effective control with um, new materials and construction methods instead of just yes. using density and mass yes right. yeah exactly that's uh, that 's great information for all the listeners. Um, the resources that uh, Andrew has referenced here, the OSHA document and uh, the various other um, organizations uh, will have links to um, all of these posted in our show notes. So be sure to look there for more information. To, uh, to wrap up here, uh, Andrew, um, what's the best... Uh, Short form advice. We've we've talked here about the hierarchy of controls, essentially, um, where PPE should um, should be a consideration a little further down the line. We've talked about um, uh, instead looking at uh, environmental controls, some engineering controls. Um, uh, is there any comments regarding um, administrative controls in terms of? work cycles, um, just re- reductions of exposure through uh, employee scheduling or work scheduling um, that you'd recommend? Uh, that certainly can work. Um, it, it
1: tends to be not terribly effective. I'll just illustrate, say for example, um, somebody is, is at the 90 decibel threshold from an eight-hour working day. If you got him exposed to um, half of that, um, for only four hours, it would only bring his exposure down by three decibels, assuming that the other four hours is pretty well exposed to no noise. So, so it's not a ter- actually ha- having people away from the noisy parts is not a terribly effective way of um, of reducing noise, but it is, of course measure that is necessary and the other thing is that distance so with every doubling of distance you have the decibel level um, from a no- noise source but if there are lots of noise sources again that may not work so the administrative controls um, are, tend not to be as much recommended as the dramatic emphasis in the references that we will uh, give you as you mentioned to actually try to control the noise that
0: source from the process where possible, um, yeah, that that tends to be the case. Tremendous. So, in the big scheme of things, um, reduce that source um, as your as your first uh, step, and then uh, move down the line from there. Yeah, it, uh, certainly in UK
1: and uh, European legislation. If you don't control the noise at source, if you don't do all that you can to reduce the noise at source, you could be in breach of your duty of care, regardless of whether you provide PPE or not, if a person ends up at the end of their working life with noise induced hearing loss, or if they get acoustic shock syndrome, or if they've got uh, tinnitus or other effects. Right. So that, that's really where you've got to focus because the duty of care is often written in to reduce the noise at source.
0: Right. With the case that you had mentioned earlier uh, regarding the uh, Viola player, um, in that particular case, do you see that opening up um, uh, legally? Uh, it sounds like it was a landmark case and, uh, and um, one would think that uh, there may be similar, uh, similar cases coming forward through the court system yeah I think it indicates especially with this focus on the breach
1: of the duty of care in not reducing the noise at source, that identifying that issue opens up other claims because if other employers are not reducing noise at source and there's an effect even with p p e then there may be ultimately a claim so and the claims can be quite big you know if people if people are if people can't carry on with their work or if people people's hearing is damaged, so they have a, a so social problems, then um, yeah, the the claims can be quite significant. Three quarters of a million for gold cheater, um, half a million for Inglis at the uh, Ministry of Defense, half a million pounds.
0: It's, uh, in the broad scheme of things, um, these are exposures that, um, clearly, uh, organizations need to take seriously, understand the, uh, um, the control mechanisms as, as you've described them, I think, is really just um, a great way to proceed. And um, through this conversation, you've, you've mentioned uh, a large number of resources that um, anyone who's interested in getting more practical information on how to carry out those, uh, those things um, can go uh, have a look at. It's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you about it. Much appreciate it. By all means, uh, this has been uh, a great uh, eye-opener for me as well. Thanks very much, Andrew. You're most welcome. A pleasure. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard today or liked other podcasts in this series, please leave a review for us on Google or Apple or wherever you access your podcasts. If you'd like to comment directly or have subject matter that you think would be of interest to the Safety with Purpose community and would like to guest on the show, feel free to email me at pat.robinson at safopedia.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.